Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. You know, this month, my wife and I are celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary, so I was looking at some pictures uh, from our wedding from 12 years ago, and I how good I look in that tuxedo from Leon Tailoring. Not just me, but all my groomsmen as well. And so if you got a big formal event or a wedding this fall, or maybe wedding next spring, think about our good friends over at Leon Tailoring. Larry, Norm, Kim, and Judy would be happy to see you and happy to make you look as good today as I did 12 years ago. Well... It'll almost look as good as me as 12 years ago. I'm just kidding. So we're going to buy Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you. 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Well, as you folks know, 2023 is uh, basically in the books as far as elections go, but that does not stop us from talking about 2024. So look back at the year in review uh, here in Indiana with 2023's municipal elections and what's ahead uh, here in the great state of Indiana in 2024 is our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne Director Emeritus. So, Andy, my friend, always good to chat with you. Thank you very much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, what was your big takeaway from 2023 as far as municipal elections go here in Indiana? In some respects, it was a year like a lot of municipal election years. Some seats changed hands. Uh, Republicans, as I recall, slight gain in terms of mayoral ships around the state. But if you look around the state uh, with larger communities and, and uh, you know, you say, I think uh, D's are going to win here and R's are going to win there. A lot of what you expected to happen did happen. Uh, I do think there will be some people who want to focus on some firsts. I think there were some interesting firsts. And then some other people are going to want to point out, uh, uh, look at the fact that, for example, up in my neck of the woods, uh, there just really was not a whole lot of turnout and ask if that's a problem that needs to be addressed. It's interesting to me that because I looked at the map and uh, for the most part, it seemed like everything uh the, the seal phrase, the more things change, the more they stay exactly the same. Democrats won where you expect Democrats to win, and Republicans won where you expect Republicans to win. Yeah, they did. And um, what's interesting, this was, oh, I forget how many years ago. Many, many years ago, I was talking with uh, one of the state party chairs. And his response when I asked about municipal election years was, you know, this happens every year. We lose some seats, they gain some seats. Next time, we'll win some seats, they'll lose some seats. You just know there's going to be a certain amount of turnover, and you just kind of accept it. So you try to make sure you don't have a big loss. You know, you don't lose 30, 40 seats, and then you focus on the seats where you're expected to do well or where you might get a pickup. But we need to remember, for a lot of these races for mayor, we're talking about relatively small communities where it does not take a whole lot of money in order to make a pretty big difference in what you're able to do from a campaigning standpoint. And it's interesting you bring that up because I want to say, uh, looking at uh, the race down in New Albany, Ed Clear, uh, who ran as a Republican against uh, the incumbent, uh, against uh, the incumbent, actually lost, which I thought was interesting. We've seen how, you know, uh, Southern Indiana is supposed to be so 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 deep red, so to speak. It really is, and of course, you and I both know it wasn't that long ago where it was considered conservative, but a place where Democrats would win. Uh, so sometimes we're just looking at a shift in the party label in terms of who's actually winning elections. Uh, but that, that might be one of those examples where, as the state party chair said to me, we lose some, we gain some. That's the nature of city elections. That could be one of those examples. Now, also, too, I thought was interesting were the races in Terre Haute and Evansville, because they had uh, two Republican mayors, had Duke Bennett uh, and Terre Haute, uh, Lloyd Winnicky, who stepped down in Evansville. Uh, but starting with Evansville, I thought with Lloyd Winnicky sort of not on the ballot, all Evansville did was just sort of go back to the way Evansville, you would, you would think Evansville would go. <laughs> yeah, it really did. It really did. 
Uh, of course, you know, open seats are going to open up the op- the possibility of that happening. And that, that's what we have to remind people. Uh, when we know the incumbents and the incumbents are running, for some people, they just figure, hey, the incumbent, the, the city hasn't gone uh, to pot, so I'm going to go with the devil I know instead of the devil I don't know. We reelect incumbents at an incredibly high rate throughout the entire country, and including Indiana. Uh, but when you get that open seat, suddenly the possibility Everybody starts wondering, oh, maybe where we see the big shift happening, whether that's people saying the South is, is solidly Republican, so will Democrats win there, or Hamilton County, will Democrats suddenly be able to win a seat in this Republican stronghold? Open seats open up those kinds of possibilities. But you're right, you look down there and you go, huh, son of a gun. Uh, Democrat managed to win the race uh, with uh, close to 50 percent, which is kind of what we would expect to see down in Evansville. We're talking today uh, to our good friend, Andy Downs, of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, Director Emeritus, about uh, 2023 and also 2024 uh, in just a bit. Uh, Andy, something I also thought was interesting was the fact that uh, Lloyd Winnicky, uh served basically three terms as mayor. Uh, he was sort of like uh, the, the Evansville version of Greg Ballard, so to speak, a Republican who won uh, in a Democratic area. But as soon as the Republican left, ah, we're back to normal. Yeah, that's actually that's probably a pretty good way to put it, uh, to help people understand what was going on. Let's remember, though, Ballard, somebody who had a really big upset when he when he knocked off Bart Peterson and then by most accounts did a pretty good job as mayor. I mean, people are going to have issues whenever you're talking about who the mayor is. But in the end, I think people have to say, okay, things went reasonably well here. And then they have to ask themselves, okay, uh, was this because of him? Was it for other reasons? And as long as he's getting any of the credit, He's the mayor of the largest city in the state, one of the largest cities in the country, and his name never comes up as somebody to run for governor or for the U.S. Senate on the Republican Party ticket. Uh, It's interesting when you see those uh, people winning a race, Republicans in this case, winning a race, serving in a place where they should not be winning, at least not winning by much if they do win, and then they just sort of disappear from the conversation. But that's a proven vote getter who's now chucked out as a possibility for other offices. And also, too, I want to say uh, Duke Bennett was on his like uh, about to serve like his fourth or fifth term uh, in Terre Haute. Uh, but from everything I was told, he just didn't seem to have the energy or the drive to, to really do this. And his Democratic challenger just just did. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for you got to put the work in. I mean, they, uh, uh, the, I, I said earlier, incumbents win at really high rates. And, you know, this is somebody who's been through some close races, so he knows what it's like to campaign. He knows what, what it takes to win the close races. Uh, but yeah, sometimes you, you as, as one former city council uh, person said to me, I thought of the seat as mine. And it was no longer I'm doing this for the public, not that they weren't thinking about, about the public when they were serving, but they really sort of took ownership of the seat and believed it was theirs and that they spoke for everybody in the district. So he signed up to run for reelection and then partway into the process realized, I just don't have it. I don't I don't have the energy to go to all those neighborhood meetings and to walk precincts. I just don't have it. And so he had to fight himself to get out. And maybe that's what should have happened down in Terre Haute. Uh, hard to say. Well, it's like the, like my uh, well, old theater director always said, Abdul, leave while, they, leave while they're applauding. Get off the stage. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, also, uh, what happened up in uh, Fort Wayne? Because I thought uh, uh, with Tom Henry's, uh, with the sort of his uh, issues that he had, his, his pleading guilty, that, that might have had an impact uh, in that race up in Allen County. 
we had what people might consider to be one of the most polite races you could ever expect to see uh, in this day and age. Now, it helps the two candidates, uh, Tom Henry, the incumbent, the Democrat, uh, Tom Didier, the Republican challenger. They're both just they're, they're nice individuals. Their families have known each other for years. And they made the decision that they were not going to get nasty. Uh, that didn't mean that other people couldn't get nasty, but the two of them were going to sort of talk about themselves, their bios, and why they think they're the right person to win. That's basically what their campaign commercials were. You barely saw them mentioning the other side. And um, so when you don't have people bringing that up, uh, it's not going to be as big an issue. And that's basically what happened. There was an awful lot of body cam footage that could have been used in television commercials just didn't happen. It's it's not Didier's way. Uh, He was not going to do that. Uh, Because of that, uh, Tom Henry was able to talk about what he had done as a long-serving mayor here, four terms, he was in his fourth term, and talk about what he still wanted to get done in a fifth term. Uh, But Tom Didier was on city council that entire time, so it was hard for Didier to kind of take ownership of successes because he was one of nine things mayor brought to the table and it made for sort of an awkward campaign. But this is one of those places where the turnout was low. And if you look up and down the ticket, while Tom Henry did win, Democrats got their clocks clean and some of them in council races and some of them were really well financed, ran what academics and, and political hacks would say were really good campaigns. Yet they managed to get their clocks clean. And so the question is, did some of that uh, difficulty from the previous year rub off and people kind of stayed home and did that hurt the races down ticket that's a question up here that's some soul searching that's going on our guests on the program today is our good friend andy downs director emeritus of the mike Downs center for indiana politics at purdue university fort wayne as we look back at 2023's elections and look forward also look forward also here in indiana to 2024 uh, andy a couple places i thought were interesting uh indianapolis uh Marion County, Joe Hogg said Jefferson Shreve. Shreve uh, had deep pockets, which I know from personal experience in the primary <laughs> uh, back, back in May. Uh, but uh, almost $20 million spent, and at the end of the day, it was still 60-40 Democrat-Republican. That's an awful lot of money to get spent. And we see examples of this every year, though. Every election, there's somebody who is incredibly well-financed who barely beats the spread. Uh, and then somebody who spends, you know, a dollar fifty and hits the spread. There are times when voters just default to their knee-jerk party affiliation. I think that happens sometimes when there's just a real strong party affiliation that exists. I think it also happens sometimes when people are basically happy with the status quo, and so they figure, let's not change ships, let's uh, jump ship, let's 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 keep things as they are. As I said earlier, the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know. I think that's part of it. Uh, but we could start to, if you want to go down this road, we could start to talk about how you spend all that money and still end up where you were. And I think some people are going to point to two things. First, Jefferson Shreve spending all that money uh, and moderating positions in ways that would probably not be well received by the Republican base and therefore maybe turning off some of those voters. And secondly, You know, you run television commercials to reinforce a message, and there's got to be consistent delivery of the message. I got calls up here from people saying, what the heck? He's running commercials over a whole bunch of topics right now. Is that going to be effective? In some respects, that confuses the message for people, and they're just not sure. 
um, you know, where do you stand on all these things? Or I only hear one commercial about, uh, you know, an animal shelter, and then I hear one commercial about jobs, and then I hear one commercial about something else. And it's just not, it's not a cohesive message that's getting, you know, plunked into my head. Uh, and that can be problematic. So I think those are two things that people will ask about his campaign. Also, I think, too, uh, a, a criticism that I had of Jefferson, we're good friends and know each other forever, uh, was, uh, as you know, you, as you well know, my friend, Politics is about uh, vote is about uh, who you like. You vote for who is an emotional process. People tend to vote. T- people tend to vote most of the time for who they like and against who they can't stand. And I think Jefferson just had just couldn't quite make that emotional connection uh, with the voters that he needed to win the to win the mayor's race. I think that's a good point. I, one of the things about uh, the animal shelter commercial, I'm sure people will know what I'm talking about. The commercial that showed him at the public meeting. Uh, where they were obviously the topic was the animal shelter, and that's part of what the audio was about. But if you just looked at the images, what you saw was somebody who was willing to engage with residents, uh, willing to talk with them about issues. People were standing up politely, so it was demonstrating, you know, nice deliberation and discussion. That theoretically could have been reinforcing a message of this is going to be my approach. I'm going to come out and talk to you. I want to hear what you have to say. I'm not going to run away from you. But if that's not the message that's getting delivered consistently through all the other means, in other words, people being drawn to the candidate, as you pointed out, then unfortunately that that undercurrent message in the animal shelter commercial is just not going to make it through. Uh, well, I was kind of joking said what Jefferson probably should have done was a Raphael Warnock uh, commercial. Hey, I love puppies. <laughs> hey, 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 my, hey, my friend! You never know. Uh, you guess, never know. Our guest of today is uh, uh, Andy Downs, Professor Emeritus, uh, Director Emeritus at the Mike Downs Center for Indian Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. Getting caught up on 2023 and also 2024. Uh, moving up to Hamilton County, there have been a lot of talk, uh, Andy, about how uh, Hamilton County is becoming more blue, uh, or, or, or at least uh, maybe a little bit less red, maybe more purple, or maybe more burgundy. And but at the end of the day, uh, Republicans swept Hamilton County like they like they usually do. Yeah, it seemed pretty red on election night. Uh, and what's interesting is when you think about the issues that come up in a local election: fire response times, police response times, potholes getting filled, zoning issues. These are not things that fall on neat party lines. And so, if if a minority party is going to do well you think it might be in a local election. But in the end, what we see is basically party line vote. I mean, that's that's kind of what we saw in Hamilton County and in a lot of other counties. Um, so does this mean something bad for the Democrats? They were talking about how they were making advancements in Hamilton County, and they pointed to a few races saying, oh, look here, look there. And sometimes even pointing to losses, like Joe Donnelly saying, look how well he did in Hamilton County. So this is not like a new narrative. This is a narrative that's been going for a while. Uh, and then you see a night like we had, uh, you know, this past election night, and suddenly people are going to say, well, is that is that narrative just bunk? Is it all is it all gone? Does it mean nothing now? Eh, probably shouldn't say it means nothing. Uh, but this is the problem when people try to say that local elections will predict what happens in statewide or federal elections. Also, my friend, too, I want to get uh, your thoughts uh, on uh, straight ticket voting uh, and, and voter turnout. Uh, straight ticket voting uh, was was uh, back I was say when ballot ran back in 2007. Uh, Republicans basically matched Democrats with straight ticket voting. 
Uh, fast forward 2023, 37,000 more straight ticket votes uh, in Marion County. Straight ticket votes, for some people, they're the bane of an existence, and for other people, it's the lifeblood. If your party is the dominant party, you got to love it, because if nobody knows your race, uh, that you know, they don't know that you're running for township advisory board in some even-numbered year or something like that. Hey, as long as they walk in and press the straight party vote, you're good. Uh, but if you're in the minority party, that straight party vote really hurts you quite a bit. It is. Uh, I, I understand why people want to get rid of it. I really do. Uh, you should be voting in the races when you know stuff about the candidates. But at the same time, the party labels do matter a little bit. And if somebody is running as a Republican. There are some things we know about that individual, or at least we can assume we know about that individual. And I get why people say, let's just let's leave the part, straight party button there because the label means something. And it's, an, it's a proxy. It's an easy way for someone to vote and be maybe not fully informed, but slightly informed. At the same time, boy, is it easy to understand why people say, chuck it, get rid of it, make people press the button. They can still say you know, I'm a Republican, so I'm going to press every Republican button, or I'm a Democrat, and I'm going to press every Democratic button. But make them do it. And maybe what will happen is when they get to one of those races, they'll realize, oh, hey, wait a minute, I know this person, and they don't have my party label, but uh, I know them, I like them, so I'll vote for them. Maybe that will happen. Uh, voter turnout uh, in this uh, election season was about 30%, according to the uh, Secretary of State's website. Uh, good number or bad number for a municipal election? Yeah, it's not a bad number. It's not a great number, but it's not a bad number. Um, for a place like Allen County, you know, the election board up here plans for about a 35% turnout, and they're always planning for what they think will be the maximum. Uh, and this is basically what all the counties do. I'm just using Al as an example because I know the number we use up here. Uh, so when you talk 30% turnout overall, that's not bad. It is, however, the lowest turnout that we see. And that's low turnout in a state that is known for low voter turnout in all elections. So I, some people should be saying this is problematic. Thirty uh, percent of the registered voters, who, by the way, are not 30 percent of the population over the age of 18, maybe should not be making all of the decisions for all of us. Um, yeah, that's a good argument. Uh, so you know, how do we get more people to go vote? I always said, my friend, that uh, at the end of the day, it's issues and candidates that will always drive turnout. They do. They really do. You know, we jokingly say in, in political science world, we jokingly say campaigns matter because they do. You know, I mean, you've got a, a good candidate who meets people well, runs a smart campaign. Quite often that's going to be enough, but we can't say it's going to work every time. And I would point to several of the council races up where I am where people really did run quite nice campaigns and just just got hammered uh, because sometimes there's you know a trend that you can't defeat. Our guest on the program today is our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, uh, Director Emeritus. As we get caught up on 2023 and look ahead to 2024, speaking to my friend of 2024, yay. <laughs> even though it's, well, as it even, is November of 23. It's time to start talking about 24, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, what do you see? Uh, we got, we got, uh, uh, when we have a race for governor coming up here uh, in Indiana, uh, five major candidates, one uh, sort of minor candidate. My, my running joke is anybody in Indiana who's not running for governor, let's take a step forward. <laughs> well, last time I checked, neither of us are running. So uh, we can we can have this conversation because we don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, it is interesting. Obviously, it's an open seat. Uh, but can you imagine an environment 
where the lieutenant governor, uh, sitting lieutenant governor, says, I am interested in running and receives legitimate challenge immediately. I mean, that's just that's an interesting set of circumstances. Some people would say it's a good set of circumstances. It means that there's competition within the party. Uh, you know, people are talking about things and they have different perspectives that are being represented. Uh, and so challenging the LG is a good thing. And other people would say, hey, wait a minute, does that mean the party's fractured? You know, does, does this set up the opportunity for uh, this real bloody primary that actually causes uh, the winner of that nomination to go limping into the general election, possibly meaning that a seat could be lost that should be held by that party? All those things come up. Uh, the real question for me is how quickly can they sing Kumbaya after election, primary election day? And it's interesting, uh, my friend, you bring that up because, uh, like I said, you got Suzanne Crouch, you got former Attorney General Curtis Hill, uh, you got uh, Eric Dode and Brad Chambers, both former heads of the IDC, and of course uh, Mike Braun, uh, uh, U.S. Senator. Uh, if you if you had to declare a front runner, my theory is that it's probably going to be Mike Braun because Mike Braun has has de facto the most name ID, but that's also like saying how, who's the tallest midget in the room. Yeah, you know, he, I agree. He probably does have the best name ID. Uh, although I would I would argue we maybe should not underestimate Suzanne Crouch's name ID. She is really good about visiting with local newspapers and radio stations when she's out and about the state uh, as as the LG. Uh, but you know that only goes so far. So Braun probably has the best name ID, and I'm actually going to say maybe he is viewed as the front runner uh, because uh, Eric Dogan's running a commercial right now in which he says something about DC politicians. But I'm the governor, and I had a plan. He talked about how D.C. politicians just you know, talk, and they don't really do anything. But I have a plan. Come look at my plan. Here are the things my plan is going to do. Some people might say that's a, a bit of a swipe at Mike Braun. He's the only one in the race for whom that kind of swipe would make any sense. Uh, but it's an, odd, it's an odd thing to bring up without specifically naming him. It could be they have data that says the public is just so upset with Washington, D.C. right now. Say anything you can to be critical of D.C. and you score some points. That's another possibility. But you can't ignore the fact that that might be a swipe at Braun. Also, speaking of Mike Braun, uh, Mike Braun also got uh, the Donald Trump endorsement uh, for governor. Uh, your thoughts on that? And uh, was it almost sort of too early uh, to, to get the uh, – because I want to say the, the day that Mike Braun – I uh, got the Donald Trump endorsement was also the day that Bobby Knight died. Uh, and in Indiana, we know which one got more attention. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that that was awfully early. Uh, I think that that could be problematic because there are only so many times that media are going to cover that. Uh, and this is something that a lot of candidates have trouble understanding. They think, oh, I'm just going to keep hammering away on this issue throughout the entire campaign and I'll get all this great earned media no, at some point, the media will say, we've covered that story. We're not going to cover it again. So an endorsement in you know November, uh, a full year before the election, that can get lost. The question with endorsements is, what do you do with them? Now, obviously, uh, President Trump, former President Trump, did really well in terms of votes in the state of Indiana. And the Braun campaign can put that on every single piece of mail and social media and television commercial they put out. So the question for me is, what will they do with the endorsement? If it was just the hit of, of announcing, yeah, he's got the endorsement, that's over and done and probably forgotten by a really large percentage of the population who were paying attention and missed by a larger chunk of the population. It's like I jokingly say, uh, 
It's like the season of Dallas when Jr. got shot. Everybody remembers the season cliffhanger, but nobody remembers how the season started. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we got a long season ahead of us. Still. Oh, oh, my friend, yes, we do. Uh, speaking of which, uh, how do you run uh, as a Republican? Uh, and do you do you, even though Republicans have had the office since you know, 2004 since I moved here uh, to Indiana? How do you how do you criticize Eric Holcomb or say you want to you want to do things differently? Uh, but still, no. Hey, Republicans have had the whole show for a while. So, are you really just pointing the finger at yourself? Uh, Mitch Daniels, when he ran for governor, uh, had a line. I'm going to get it slightly wrong. I'm sure he'll call in and, and correct me. And I appreciate him doing that. It was something like, "Every garden needs uh, a garden needs to be weeded every 16 years." And then he would also say, "These are not bad people. They just govern poorly." And what he was saying was basically the D's had control of the governor's office for 16 years, time for them to go and for something new to come in. And he basically meant himself, but he also meant the Republican Party. I mean, that was very clear in the messaging. Uh, it, it, would be, it would be wrong, I think, for Republicans to run against Eric Holcomb. He won re-election handily. Uh, other than the, uh, the uh, pandemic stuff, I'm not sure there are a whole lot of Republicans who are being critical of him. I would I would be very cautious about running against him. Uh, it, he's he's a nice guy. He meets people well. I mean, all that stuff is true. So for me, if I were running as a Republican, I would maybe even want to say things like, "This is how I'm going to continue the successes of." And that's actually going to be kind of easy because one of the things Holcomb has focused on throughout his entire time in office is workforce development. That's still going to be an issue. So you can pick stuff like that and say. Look at the successes that we had. Here's how I'm going to take that to the next level. So you're reminding people that they're fairly happy, uh, no need to change party ships at this point, and here's how I'm going to make your life even better. Also, my friend, too, uh, from, the, from a Democratic perspective, obviously uh, Jennifer McCormick has uh, declared uh, she's sort of running uh, sort of an uphill battle, but do Democrats have a shot uh, in Indiana in 2024? Every race is winnable, but the details matter tremendously. I think if, if we were in Vegas and there were odds getting made, they would not be very good for Jennifer McCormick. But she defeated a, a known statewide individual when she was elected superintendent of public instruction. So you have to remember she knows how to run statewide. She knows how to run a shoestring uh, campaign on a shoestring budget. Uh, and she has the ability to focus on some issues that voters very much care about and take ownership of those issues. She could get, you know, sort of pigeonholed as just education or just workforce development. That could be problematic for her. So she has to broaden her base a little bit or, or her platform a little bit. Um, you know, but to summarize, after I've after I've rambled on here for a little bit, to summarize. Long odds, but every race is winnable. Uh, how about the legislature? Expect any major changes there? Probably not. I, you know, we have a number of seats that have opened up just uh, north of Indianapolis. There are a couple of seats. Uh, there will be some change, obviously, because of that. Uh, but I think, you know, it will be very much like what we've seen in the past. There will be somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 25 to 30 seats that are probably uncontested. Uh, the majority, vast majority of incumbents will win re-election. And we'll see probably supermajority still among the D's and the R's. You spend more time in, in the state house than I do. And, and uh, you know, maybe you've heard things where Republicans are saying, you know what, we're not going to support so-and-so, or Democrats are saying the same thing. Maybe that will cause some additional change. But uh, I, I, I don't see a whole lot of change happening there. 
Uh, final question for you, my friend. This is uh, this is really in the weeds, so you'll really appreciate this. <laughs> on the on the one hand, we've got a uh, uh, contested gubernatorial primary on the Republican side. You no, know, five, mm-hmm. six Republicans. Uh, but for lieutenant governor, uh, we've got uh, uh, conservative activists Micah Beckwith, uh, Chip Garden, uh, who may run. Is it time for Indiana to maybe sort of change the way they pick their governors, lieutenant governors? Because you could end up in a situation where you've got a governor of one sort of, you know, sort of mindset and a lieutenant governor that they can't stand that was picked by delegates. I, I think I think that if people spent a lot of time talking about it, uh, they would say, let's make sure they're a team and they are of one mind. Because when you think about it, you elect a governor, your assumption is that governor is going to be there for four years. The only reason lieutenant governor is taking over is if something happened. Uh, and so you want continuity within that, within that four-year period. And, the, you know, the tasks the lieutenant governor is performing during that four-year period should be in alignment with the governor. I think if you were to get people to sit down and have a thoughtful, informed discussion, they would probably say that should be of one mind. And uh, the people who would say, no, it should not, are probably folks who believe they can rally enough voters at a convention, but not necessarily statewide. All right. Like I said, we covered a lot of ground for 2023 and just a preview of 2024. And my friend, Mr. Dallas, my spider system, we're going to be talking quite a bit next year for some strange reason. <laughs> well, there's plenty to talk about. We got all kinds of excitement next year. Oh, yeah. That's that's one way to look at it. I got to go get my blood pressure checked again. <laughs> our guest on the program today has been our good friend, Andy Downs, Director Emeritus of the Mike Downs Center of Indian Politics for Purdue, for, for, at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. Andy, my friend, always good to talk to you. Have yourself a good Thanksgiving, a good Christmas, and we'll chat early January, old friend. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.